Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. One of the goals of this show is to explore what I call lines of action. Are there things we can do to improve our outcomes? I believe almost always there are. We just don't often act on the evidence before us. For example, do economic policy choices need to be a zero-sum game, with politicians dividing up what they see as a fixed pie and trying to mandate results and outcomes? No, they do not. We have a clear, real-world example of how to put in place incentives for innovation, economic growth, and prosperity. At the state level, we have the tools to predict and take action to determine how all 50 state economies will perform into the future developed by the American Legislative Exchange Council. Rich states, poor states is an annual forecast based on each state's current standings and 15 policy variables. Each of these factors is directly influenced by state lawmakers through the laws they pass. As we'll talk about in this show, if we know what works and what does not, Why are so many states still lagging in economic performance? The original term for economics was political economy, which meant that good economics depends on sensible politics. With me to explore where this is happening and where it is not are Jonathan Williams and Representative Seth Grove. Jonathan Williams is the chief economist and vice president for the Center for State Fiscal Reform at the American Legislative Exchange Council and one of the authors of Rich States, Poor States. In his role with ALEC, Jonathan has become one of the most highly regarded leaders in working with state policymakers, Congress, and members of the private sector to develop sound economic growth policy solutions. Seth Grove has since 2009 represented the 196th district in the Pennsylvania House of Representatives, where he chairs both the government oversight and financial oversight committees. Seth also serves on the board of ALEC. The York Dispatch says about Seth, lest anyone think that no one can go to Harrisburg and immediately start making a difference, we offer the example of someone who has, Seth Grove, one of the hardest working legislators around. Welcome, Seth. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you, Bill. So uh, tell me about ALEC. Well, ALEC is, I think, really a tremendous organization that's been around now for 45 years and really devoted to three quintessential American principles, free markets, limited government, federalism. And we work with state lawmakers, about 2,000 current state lawmakers across the United States on a nonpartisan basis to talk about what works and what doesn't across these 50 laboratories of democracy that you mentioned in your opening and talking about uh, economics. And it's really not about left-wing or right-wing economics. As Reagan would say, it's about up versus down and good economics. And uh, we don't deal with social issues. We just focus on the, really, the the common sense kitchen table issues faced by state lawmakers in their 50 state capitals. And with all the the focus on the federal budget, all the stuff happening in Washington, I think people lose sight of the fact that in each of the 50 states, we have a laboratory, as you point out, to experiment with economic policy uh, uh, ideas. Yeah, I mean, we, we see it, I, I know, as, as you know, I, I've been to many, many ALEC meetings, and uh, we've had breakout sessions, actually, on Pennsylvania and what not to do. 
particularly around our, our first class city of Philadelphia. But it's amazing to go in there, uh, converse with my colleagues from all 50 states, uh, talk about successes they've had on different policies they've, they've, they've had and uh, taking them back to your state to, to do a model uh, to, to build success. Um, it, 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 it's great camaraderie. Um, and you really get to see the impacts. You get to see the success. You get to see um, how they're winning, how they're how they're developing their states, how mm -hmm. their their citizens are prospering um, through good policy. Um, so it's a good thing, and you know it, it's far attached from the federal government. Um, you know we talked or talked earlier. I'm not sure what the solution is for for Washington D.C., but I know what the solutions for the states are. Mm -hmm. um, because we have those models to see. And you know, I think, I think Trump at the federal level is trying to take some of those successful policies that we've seen in states, build it at the state level. So um, do we think he's red rich states, poor states? I think so, given how close he is to my two co-authors, Art Laffer and well, Steve Let's talk Moore. about that. Yeah. How, did, how, did the, how did this report uh, come about and who else is involved with it besides you? So Art Laffer uh, really came up with this idea with Steve Moore over a decade ago and came to us and said, wouldn't it be great if we could create a model where state lawmakers and governors and concerned citizens could measure their states versus the other 49? And Art Laffer, of course, has been working on this for decades and has created this model. And uh, I think, you know, based on uh, their experience, uh, I think President Trump and probably a lot of members of Congress uh, watch this. What's unfortunate, I'm glad you mentioned just the differences in policymaking between yeah. Washington, D.C. and the state is that the mainstream media pays so much attention to what's happening in the federal level, they ignore a lot of these really important decisions made at the state and local levels of government. And, and so just to amplify, Arthur Laffer is the Arthur Laffer of the Laffer Curve, has been advising presidents for four decades and is considered one of the greatest economies, I believe, of the 2021st century. And Steve Moore was with Club for Growth and the Wall Street Editorial Board, now with Heritage as their economist. And uh, is now up for the Federal Reserve Board, which is a conversation for another day. Yes. Uh, the model was developed based on 15 factors. How did you come up with 15? What is, what, what is that? Well, obviously, we could probably come up with 1,000, but uh, 15 <laughs> is where Art Laffer wanted to start. And, yeah. you know, we chose the 15 for a couple of reasons, and that Art studied this for 50 years, uh, somebody who is obviously a legend in, in our field and somebody who deserves a Nobel prize in economics, in my uh, opinion. Yes. Uh, and he has uh, just uh, done such an incredible job on the background research to show why these 15 factors matter for economic growth, first of all. And that's really why we chose them. But secondly, and I think perhaps just as importantly, is there factors that people like Seth Grove and other state lawmakers in their state capitals directly control? Because there's all these indices that we see it from CNBC, from Forbes, from all the other groups out there. But many times other indices measure things like weather and however they define things like quality of life that state legislators would love to control. However, they can't, obviously. And we look at the things that really state well, lawmakers Well, that's the key. And that, 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 that's the thing I mentioned in the opening is that there are things we can do to bring about change. And there are things we can't. We can't change our climate, but we can change our tax laws. Correct. And that's the, that's the essence of what, uh, of what this is. Now, one of the things you do that's sort of fascinating to me is you rate states as of today on how they're doing on their economic performance today. And you have three metrics that you use, and those are? The GDP growth, GDP, job growth, and population growth are the three performance measures which look back the last decade worth of data. And you, you called uh, population, you call, you've got a big four-letter, five-letter, five-dollar word for that, absolute d domestic migration cumulative. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> 10 years. And I see California ranks minus 799,000. Does that mean 799,000 people have left California? On net. And what that is, and here's the difference between that and population, is that that is net domestic migration, which is Americans, when they're in the United States, deciding when they move from state to state versus things like international immigration or birth rates and death rates. And what, why generally economists look at net domestic migration is it drills down into the factors that cause people to go from state to state versus just natural occurrences like births and deaths. and, and then So these are people moving to Arizona and Texas. Exactly. And Colorado. And Colorado. That's right. And uh, some conservative elected officials in those states are not happy about that because obviously some of these folks are bringing their voting behavior with them, right? Well, and they're losing congressional seats, too. And that's actually a really important story in that California, since statehood, roughly 1850, has always gained congressional seats because California was the land of opportunity, the golden state yeah. for uh, a reason, uh, really, yeah. it was economic opportunity. And for the first time in state history, 2010, California did not gain a new congressional seat. And it's very possible, as we get close to 2020 in the census coming up, uh, that California may lose its first congressional seat because of this massive net domestic outmigration, yeah. about 800,000 that you mentioned. So you get the report, rich states, poor states, and I've Got, I guess I've got last year's edition here. You go to new one coming out in a couple of months. We do. And I'm a governor, and I pick this up, and I look at it, and I get very happy. Oh, I'm ranked number one now based on these three factors. But then I got, then I have uh, Alex's uh, judgment about how it's going to look in the future, and that's based on the 15 factors. So just briefly, without getting too in the weeds, what are the, what are the 15 factors? Well, broadly, the categories are tax policy, regulation, and labor policy. Okay. Uh, those are things that Art Laffer has developed, and we've kept consistent over yeah. now the 12 years. So taxes, regulation, labor. And keeping it consistent is helpful long term because it's not a, a we're not going to add new data points. It, you know where you stand on these, these 15 metrics, which, which we can control. So if you look in their policies, are you right to work state? How high is your, do you have a, an income tax and how high is that rate? Right. Is it a flat tax? Are you a progressive income tax? So that consistency allows you to build um, profiles of states long-term. So it's not, uh, we're gonna add, add a, 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 a new dimension here and take it away. So it allows you to have a consistent profile of states moving and forward. And the, these 15 factors have stayed the same for, what, 10 years? Yeah, 12 years 12 now years of our rankings, the, okay. right. So I'm the governor of uh, the state of Washington, and I look at this report and I see I rank number one. And then I look at your prognosis, and let's see. You're predicting I'm going to end up 39. So what's, what's gone wrong here? Well, you know, the policies that they have in place based on our criteria and Art Laffer's research, we know that those policies will have a drag on future economic growth. And Washington State's a unique one because obviously whenever you measure 50 states and have all of these variables, you have outliers. And Washington State has been one of the outliers as a state that has not lost a ton of economic performance yet. But I will say- And this is, because of, most, of, this is because of Microsoft and- uh, Certainly that's one of the big reasons. Yeah. Obviously there's the international trade reason, there's the right. deep water port you know, reason there in terms of you know, commerce, but 
but also they do something right in Washington state that I think has an outsized impact on their performance in that they're one of the nine states bill that avoid a personal income tax. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the most important of the 15 factors that we measure is those states have a huge growth premium associated with them on future population growth, on job growth, on GDP growth. And so perhaps if we doubly or triply weighted uh, no income tax status, uh, that ranking would look a little bit different on the outlook side. But Art has liked to keep this equally weighted of the 15 factors just to make sure that people don't think we're cooking the books and trying to oh, change Oh, so these it. are all equally weighted. Equally weighted, right. I think if we were to change it, probably we would doubly weight things like income tax status, both business and individual, and right to work. I think those are probably the three most important mm -hmm. of the 15 factors. Now, do your fellow legislatures and, and legislators in Pennsylvania watch this and take a look at this as a scoreboard? Yeah, we track it. We like to benchmark against our sister states to see how we're doing. Um, obviously, there, there's some of my colleagues that, you know, don't necessarily buy into, you know, um, not having an income tax as a good policy or, or right to work or some of those other things. Uh, but it allows us to provide a benchmark with our sister states that allows us to compare and say, and we can go back and say, look at the success we've seen in other states because of X policy, Y policy. Um, and we, we've made some progress with Pennsylvania. It, it's politically a tough state to do it. Um, but we, we've done some some tertiary stuff around our unemployment um, um, labor policies moving forward. Um, we've we've fought back some massive tax increases that we would have took a hit. And we're pretty steady around that. Um, high to low 33 ranking uh, moving forward. I know Governor Rendell at one point, um, there was some upward movement during his administration, and, and he was, oh, even even Alex says we're doing good economically. <laughs> even so, Alex. Yeah, um, it, it's, kind of, it's kind of unique to, to hear uh, someone like Governor Ed Rendell, you know, trumpet American Legislative Exchange Council. But it, it, it's phenomenal. It's a great tool for, for us because um, – we know through metrics and, and outcomes what success looks like. Uh, we know the successful states. Um, we know where people want to move. Um, people don't want high tax, big government states uh, controlling aspects of their entire life. Um, we're seeing in Pennsylvania, um, you know, the, the, the kind of derogatory name is Taxylvania. Um, <laughs> <laughs> for, for our state, um, you know, and, it, and it's just not the big taxes. It's those nickel and diming, you know, fees and assessments on top of it. Um, and, you know, we're starting think, to see I movements think, I think of you, South Carolina. I think you, I think you rank uh, third highest state local taxes in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. So it just it, it's compounding effect. So um, one of the things I'm so curious about, because I'm not my world is not politics. My world is business investments and in that world, you're trying to act on evidence and outcomes. And, mm -hmm. you know, if you do this, this will be the outcome. You do this, you get a worse outcome. And so you adjust your, your lines of action. And here's a case you've got clear evidence, I believe, of what works and what doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And yet not much changes. So what are the, what are the barriers? I think barriers are our are, are status quo. I, I know specifically for Pennsylvania, um, you know, when we do budgeting, we like to play Santa Claus in June when our budget is done. Um, so we like to do gifts um, to, to all the Pennsylvania residents, but it's usually carved out. So instead of reforming our tax code to benefit everyone and every corporation, we may do um, special tax credits for one specific sector. Um, I remember a few years ago, um, one of our colleagues wanted to do a $100 million tax credit 
uh, for a specific business in a specific county uh, for, you know. That's, and, great, that's great public policy. Yeah, and, and you know, the, the <laughs> legislator got it. He's no longer there. He lost the election last, last election cycle. But his, his argument is, you know, we should reduce our corporate net income tax rate. It's the third highest uh, in the country. At that time, we were number two. Um, and and basically, he's like, we're never going to limit that. So I need to take care of my businesses, and we need to do a $100 million um, uh, tax credit for, for my business uh, in, in my area. And I afterwards, I looked at him, I'm like, you know, in, in, if this was your budget ask, why wasn't your budget ask uh, uh, starting to reduce the corporate net income tax? Mm -hmm. I, I agree where you're going. And I see it all across all across the, 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 the country when, when you start doing corporate welfare and just targeting specialized industries. You, you end up losing people because you're not benefiting. Yeah, you're picking winners and losers. Yeah, you're not it, letting the market yeah, work. Yeah. It just does not work. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's that kind of institutional, um, you know, budget line items. We have what's called walking around money. Um, so legislators will do ask within the budget to, to send money out to their special pet projects. Um, it, it's probably half a billion dollars in our budget. That's just discretionary spending. That's just ad hoc, and can't say it's 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 really moving Pennsylvania forward. You know, you strip that money out and do tax cuts, you're going to get more growth and more impact on an individual basis than than you than mm -hmm. you will. Jonathan, well, you hit on something really important there, which is just this nexus between taxing and spending mm -hmm. at the state level. Because at the end of the day, uh, Bill, states need to balance their budgets. They don't have printing presses. That's a good thing. Uh, otherwise, California would be in much worse shape than it already is. They don't have but their own little Federal Reserve cranking yeah. out. That's exactly uh, right. And that's an important dynamic. A that's a very important <laughs> dynamic. And that to be sustainable long term and to keep your tax burden competitive long term, you also need to show prudence on the spending side of the equation. And the states that have done things well over a period of years have generally exhibited that is restraint on the spending side of the equation. And, you know, one of my favorite economists, Thomas Sowell, I think put it best in that the first law of economics is a scarcity of resources. The first law of politics, however, is to ignore the first law of economics. And so that's where we get into a lot of trouble at the state level. Now, you don't include things in your ratings like uh, balanced budgets. I mean, we talked about this before. You don't think the balanced budget uh, amendments are all that effective? Yeah, I mean, we have a constitutional provision that says on, on June 30th, we have to have a balanced budget. It's basically on paper. Yeah. Um, it has to balance for one second on one day when the governor, you know, signs that certification. Um, give you a few examples. We, we, we use fake revenues to balance a budget. Uh, for the past three budgets, we've had this 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 revenue source of rating this joint underwriting association JUA fund. Um, we attempted it three years ago. Yeah. Um, it was stopped in state court. Um, the next year we tried it again. It was stopped in federal court. So the governor put it in the budget again for for this year. Um, so I was joking with the budget secretary. I'm like, are we going to international court now to try to get this? You failed at the state. <laughs> you failed at the feds. Now we're going to international. Trump and wouldn't like that. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah it's it's two hundred million dollars. Yeah, um, that has never transpired. So and and it it ends up being a double whammy, right? So you don't have the revenue. So that's like in the corporate world, where you get these big companies that they pay down their debt at December thirty first, so the balance sheet looks better, and then yep. January first, they're right back at it. 
That's right. And yeah. not all state balanced budget amendments are yeah. created equally. Some are better than others. Indiana voters just put one into their state constitution this last fall that was uh, crafted by Mitch Daniels and his team originally and Mike Pence as governor of Indiana. And I think that will have some staying power and be helpful. Uh, but others, as Seth pointed out mm -hmm. correctly, like California has a balanced budget. We know what kind of fiscal shape they're in, whether it's pension liabilities, whether it's overall state debt. Uh, in, in many cases, they're not worth the paper that they're printed on, unfortunately. So Art put this together, Art Laffer put it together 12 years ago. Is there anything you would add or subtract after 12 years? Although we do need to have the, the same scorecard year to year. Mm -hmm. You know, we've talked about this a little bit. I would probably uh, enter in some additional state financial liability uh, data. We do measure state debt as one of the variables, and that's a proxy to get us to measure broader things. But that doesn't take a look at things like the massive, I think, existential crisis facing state and local budgets, and that's unfunded pension obligations, hmm. OPEB, the other post-employment, uh, basically post-retirement OPEB, OPEB uh, means what? Post-retirement health care okay. generally is the vast yeah. majority of the OPEB liabilities. And then bonded debt is what we measure in the report. But those are the three really, I think, big areas. And if we were to add a variable or two, I think it would be the unfunded pension obligations. Because what that is, it's a future tax increase waiting on whether it's businesses mm -hmm. or individuals in a state. Uh, they are going to be paying for the past uh, promises that were made that have not been funded well. What's the dimension of the problem? Well, we measure this actually every year at ALEC, and we found that the unfunded pension obligations alone are about $6 trillion in the 290 state-administered plans across Six, the country. $6 trillion versus total state GDP of what? Uh, it's it's a, it's a sizable share. You know, in a lot okay. of states, it's in the double digits of total size of the economy. Because we've got what our budget... Our, our economy, national economy is about 22 trillion, right? Mm -hmm. And we've got un, we've got a debt of about 23 trillion, 24 trillion, so it's about 100 percent. But then when you add on Medicare, Medicaid, mm -hmm. Social Security, it's close to 100 trillion. 100 trillion. Yeah. That's exactly. So right. how, by comparison, how much trouble are the states in with these? Uh, future obligations. I think it's the parallel issue at the state level. It really yeah. is uh, to what's going on nationally with unfunded liabilities in Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. So in many cases, you're looking at nearly the entire economic output of a state being represented by the unfunded pension obligation. Some states, uh, if you were to take it to a per capita level, Bill, uh, the numbers are scary. I mean, we're talking 20, 30, 40,000 per, per, per man, woman, and child in the mm -hmm. state that they would owe just to pay off the unfunded pension liabilities alone, not to mention the retiree health care piece. So we talk about people being responsible for $55,000 a piece of the federal problem, but now we get to add on to that another 50000 mm -hmm. to the state. And Gee. it's often overlooked, and you know why that is, is state governments use phony accounting. And this is something that Representative Grove has looked into a lot, and that they don't follow private sector generally accepted accounting principles. They follow their own standard called GASB, uh, the Government Accounting Standards Board, by which if you were a CEO or a CFO in the private sector signing off on financials using GASB accounting, you would be in prison in many cases. We know the innovation of Sarbanes-Oxley in the, in, the, in the corporate world was you had to sign statements every quarter and you were personally criminally liable mm -hmm. if there was a misstatement. You mean That's right. I should be shocked that state, the governors are not doing the same thing? Uh, and, and it, 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 it's just not governors, it's state legislators. Yeah. Um, you know, why, why fully fund your, your pension liability? Um, you know, that's, that's, that's not sexy. It's not going to get you votes, you know. 
you know, handing out money to school kids or build a new park. That's that's where the votes are. You know, yeah. uh, so legislators make a decision. We're going to deliberately underfund our, our pension liability um, and they can they can adjust it, go go back and say, you know, we're, we're going to have an assumed rate of, of return of, of 9 percent instead of what they're seeing. Average is probably four or five percent. That's right. Um, well, we're talking about what places, what states are doing wrong. Utah, by counterexample, ranks five in terms of economic performance today, and you have them projected to be ranked number one. What are they doing right? Well, there's so many things that Utah is doing right. They've been number one for all 12 editions of rich states, poor states, actually. And okay. so a few of the things, and this started years back, is when John Huntsman was governor of Utah, he created a flat tax on personal income, a single rate tax that got the rate down to 5% from uh, 7 or 8% before the reform. And recently, they just got it under 5%. So that's an important factor on the personal income tax, like we mentioned. But they two, two other things in Utah very well. One is they got ahead of this curve on pension reform. Back in 2011, uh, our friends out there started to transition to more mm -hmm. of the defined contribution 401k style system that the private sector has moved to decades ago. And have already started to see some great cost savings as well as as being good for young workers who, by the way, are going to move around to probably 10 jobs or more during their careers versus their parents or grandparents' generation that stuck with one job, was were vested in the pension, and then were able to stick it out. And then the, the final thing that Utah did, which I think is really remarkable, and I know in Pennsylvania you all had a lot of discussion over the escalating property tax mm -hmm. bills in especially the, the Philadelphia area, what Utah did was stop what I think is the big corporate on property taxes basically everywhere, and that is the assessment-driven property tax issue where your local governments who collect the vast majority of property taxes, as you know, will say, look at you directly in the face, Bill, and say, we just cut your property tax rate, and they did. What they're not telling you is the assessment went up by more than the rate cut. So when you look at your bill and you say, why did my property taxes just go up from last year after you told me you cut my property tax rate? That's the assessment. Because we changed the assessment in your house mm -hmm. from 200000 to right. 400000 yep. Exactly. Gee. And they don't take a vote on that. But what Utah did, which is so innovative, they have what they call the truth in taxation law that they passed in the 1980s, which they forced local officials to take recorded votes, not just on the rate differentials on property taxes, but also on changes in assessment that would raise your property taxes. So I think that's really kept them ahead of the curve for all 12 years now. So who are the who are the bad actors here? We, there's, there's the political class, obviously. People want to get reelected. They've got short-term mm -hmm. objectives, which is the next election. We're talking about long-term problems. Who are the roadblocks to change? Well, Pennsylvania is probably a great example of, of multitude of, of roadblocks. So you have you have special interest groups who uh, want to design everything to, to their benefit. Um, you know, we, the, the, for instance, the, the turnpike tolling uh, Pennsylvania, our turnpike's going broke because um, probably a decade ago, the, the General Assembly and the governor decided to uh, make bond the turnpike to make mass transit payments. Great for mass transit. Uh, they're very influential, influential, particularly in the what southeast area. What does that mean, area. bond the turnpike? So basically, the turnpike is required to take out bonds, about $450 million a year, yeah. and give it over to mass transit for capital projects. 
So it has positive cash flow. They're taking that cash flow and they're they're making it borrow money, and then they turn the money over to some other agency of government. Yep. yep. And the turnpike is required to make the payments through increasing turnpike tolls. We're at a point now that we have diminishing returns because people are not going on the turnpike because it's so costly uh, to actually drive on it. Um, so on top of the maintenance, uh, the tunnel systems, everything else that the turnpike has to maintain, they also have to make this $450 million uh, bond payment every single year. It's, it's up to $12 billion in, in total liabilities for the turnpike, and it's not sustainable moving forward. Um, so you, you have the institutionalization. We have public sector unions, which obviously want to gear uh, benefits toward themselves. So they don't want to see pension reform. Um, they don't they don't want to see less government spending. They yeah. want to they want to continue uh turn the spigot on, on the taxpayers moving forward. And it's tough because there's there's big money. You know, unions, unions supply money and they provide uh, people during election time uh, to, to reelect legislators. Um, so making a good government um, policy statement of if we don't do this, we will go bankrupt. Um, for, for some people, unfortunately, it just doesn't resonate. Doesn't yeah. resonate. In many states, the, the biggest enemy to real fiscal reform is the public sector unions, as mm -hmm. Representative Grove pointed out. And which is this is ironic because pension reform, for instance, is good for their incoming employees, for young workers that maybe are not going to stay mm -hmm. with the state for five or 10 years to even hit their vesting period to qualify for the pension. Um, however, uh, the public sector unions will fight tooth and nail to stop even transitioning new hires to new pension systems like defined contribution. And generally, the first disingenuous attack on pension reform is people want to take away pensions for existing retirees or existing workers, which in my experience following this over the last decade plus at the state level, no serious pension reform proposals are looking at targeting current retirees or current workers. I mean, number one goal of good pension reform is keeping the promise to current workers, current retirees, and then changing the deal for new employees coming forward. But unfortunately, public sector unions even fight that. Okay, so let's pick a state that's making some change. I'm the go Which state are you do you like that might be moving in the right direction? On pensions, yeah. uh, you know, Oklahoma, Michigan, okay. Utah, those so are I'm, great I'm governor of Pennsylvania. I'm, moved yeah. let's, I'm, let's say I'm governor of Oklahoma. What are you telling me how to do? What am I doing? So what Oklahoma actually <clears throat> did a few years ago was transition all new employees at the state level okay. to defined contribution type plans as of a future date certain. And so I think it was 2014 is when Oklahoma came in and said after – Employees hired after the new fiscal year date on July 1 of a given year, you will be entered into defined contribution type plan where the state is going to put a fixed amount in and perhaps match generously what you would put in as an employee. But if things go so, south, so, so they the have the equivalent of a 401k. Mm -hmm. That's right. Okay. That's right. So that doesn't seem to be that hard. It really isn't. I don't know why people make it so hard. Uh, it's, 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 uh, <laughs> I almost keep, keep yeah. turning to Seather. You're yeah. in the trenches. You yeah. tell me. Why. From, from, <laughs> I mean, the story in Pennsylvania is a great story. You know, it is just not the public sector unions. Uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, our, our, our elected officials were, were full-time. You know, base salary is about $89,000 a year. Uh, we have a what I would probably consider a, a, a golden pension system, health care. Um, Members don't want to vote against their their own interest as well. Um, we had we had uh, heavy Republican um, majorities in the House and Senate. We had a Republican governor. The governor came out and said we need to do pension reform. We've got to do it. 
it is just eating dollars out of out of our budget. Um, we can't sustain this moving forward. Never got the votes to do it. Trifecta Republican. Uh, Governor Corbett lost. We had Governor Wolf come in. He's from my home county. Um, mm -hmm. How a crow flies. We're basically neighbors. He lives in the town over. Uh, rated the most liberal governor of America. Um, put a pension reform on his desk. He vetoed it. His basis statement is we don't have a pension problem. There's nothing to see here. We'll just fund it moving forward. Uh, finally, two years after browbeating on pension, 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 um, we came to an agreement um, to, to create a new system. Three plans. One's an optional defined contribution, so a 401k, two are hybrids. Um, that is now in effect, but uh, we left an open window so anybody uh, in the state system can transfer between January 1st and March 30th of this year. School employees um, can, can do the switch coming up in, in July 1st. Uh, I made the conversion over to 401k um, for multiple reasons, the right thing to do. Um, but the, the most I hope you put it all in equities. You, you, uh, we're, you know. Obviously, yeah. Okay, all right. Especially yeah. this quarter. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, the interesting part is I'm um, also on our appropriations committee. We had the state employee retirement system. So this is, this is the system that, uh, you know, all the elected officials' retirement income is housed in. Uh, they literally testified that we are paying out more than we're getting in contributions from taxpayers and from employees, and we're losing money in the stock market. What does that say? Mm. We're going bankrupt. Mm -hmm. And I looked around the room, and no one really batted an eye. Um, we broke, went up to to to, to do um, further discussion on our next hearing, and no one really discussed that their retirement income potentially will not be there in the future because of of the management and what's happening in it. And after that, I'm like, you know what? Um, this is why politicians cannot properly manage pension funds. Mm -hmm. um, it's too easily to politically motivate it. You're looking at a, at a slew of individuals who are voters. Um, you know what? We gave you a pension bump. Come vote, vote for me. Um, and it had has drastic effects in the future. We had Republican Governor uh, Tom Ridge sign a, a pension increase um, back in 1990. The second it was signed, it created $20 million or $20 billion unfunded liability. Um, which escalated, you know, that's why we have got to go to a DC. It's less manipulation, direct, you, con direct contribution. Yeah. Okay. And you remove the risk from the taxpayers. That's right. That's the most important thing you can do within a, within a public sector employee, our, our uh, pension system. And something Seth just hit on with it is so essential because you can argue until you're blue in the face to find benefit versus defined contribution. And there's merits of both sides, mm -hmm. but I will say the political economy issue, since you coined it that way earlier, I think that's great, mm -hmm. is the, the perverse incentives, if you will, that elected officials have given a defined benefit system make it toxic for sustainability. And that is mm -hmm. elected officials are given all the political benefit up front for retroactively adding new benefit increases. They get the public sector unions in their corner. They do well with campaign contributions in the current day. Mm -hmm. And then they know that this is a 20 or 30 or 50 year problem where the bills will come due when they're long out of office and their sure. successors then will have to deal with the cleanup. I thought I was going to get cheered up finding out about all the good things happening in the yeah. states. <laughs> there I think there are good not things happening. And there are good things. I, you know, I, I think the discussion is now how, how do we... But you said something yeah. I thought was interesting when we were talking before. I said, do you want to be a congressman? You said, I'm not particularly going to Washington because I can't get anything done in Washington. Hmm. And I think the evidence is that's right. Yeah. 
But in the states, you said you can make things happen. Yeah. How? What do yeah, you? I mean, just for instance, um, you know, pension reform. Um, we were able to do it. Okay. Republicans and a, a very yeah. liberal Democrat, we sat down and said, we've got to get a fix. Now, is it is it everything we necessarily wanted? No, but it, it did a good job of shifting risk. We now have an optional defined contribution system in there. I don't have to argue benefit change on a, on a, on a 401k anymore. It's mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. All we have to do is at some date forward, just switch it off, make that the, the plan, you know, arguments done with. In D.C., a big change like that, will it ever happen? You know, I just saw um, they were doing some work on, on Social Security and, and, and Medicare. You know, the insolvency is coming up quicker and quicker. Um, they've never dealt with those, those big looming uh, you know, issues. I'm just, I'm just speculating, yeah. but it seems to me that maybe, maybe it's easier because you all think, well, we all live in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. This is the problem we all share. And at the federal level... You say, well, that's California's problem, mm -hmm. or that's Maine's. You know, I don't, is is there more of that because it's all politics, local, that you can you I, can make things happen? I would say, you know, the discussions in 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 Pennsylvania aren't aren't that different from from the federal government. Mm -hmm. You know, we could easily say that's Philadelphia's problem, that's Pittsburgh's problem. I mean, even Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. Philadelphia is the first class well, city. Well, in, in Pennsylvania's yeah. case, it is Philadelphia's problem. It is. Yeah. <laughs> they are the problem. <laughs> <laughs> more, more ways than one. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it, it, it's a similar conversation, but you have to focus on that greater good. Like, if you don't fix the pension system, we will go bankrupt. Okay. And, you know, those yeah. employees, you know, you don't want Detroit to happen. I mean, it was, it was right. egregious to see, um, you know, fire and police personnel who, who you know, did great sacrifices, mm -hmm. um, you know, put their lives on the line every single day for the residents, get pennies on the dollar of their, their pension return. You know, it's not fair to them. And if you don't have the gumption to fix those issues now, um, worst case scenario will happen. Because imagine that. Imagine the headlines that we would see at a federal level mm -hmm. if a liberal Democrat president like Barack Obama would have signed Social Security reform into law with conservative Republicans in the House and Senate. That's yeah. basically what the parallel issue yeah. was in mm -hmm. Pennsylvania, and that's what happened. Mm -hmm. So I do think that perhaps some of the parties are less dug in uh, at the state level and a little bit more willing to come across the aisle and compromise when they see there's something existential right. yeah. at the state level. And that, I think it gets back partially to the issue that state legislators and local elected officials have to govern in everyday reality. They don't deal with these issues that they can print money to solve or ignore balanced budget amendments in many cases. They mm -hmm. actually have to deal with the dollars and cents issues every year. So that's the reason for optimism about what's happening at the state level. How dependent are the states on the the federal policies versus the local policies? I mean, is it uh, it, is it, uh, it how do they it, interrelate? It really depends on how your state's set up. Some states have really mitigated those federal mandates in, in federal dollars. Um, I'm probably one of two. Probably Frank Ryan, um, a good colleague of mine. He, he's Frank C Ryan in Pennsylvania. Yeah, Frank Ryan yeah. in Pennsylvania. CPA's done turnarounds. Uh, companies. Phenomenal guy. I love him. Uh, we're probably the only two that pay attention on our comprehensive annual financial report, our, our CAFR. You know, you have your budget, what you said is your prospective, what you're going to spend. CAFR is that, how did you do moving forward? Um, so I, I asked um, our, our budget office to pull some data, um, some good, some bad. Um, you know, we've never balanced our budget um, between revenues and, and expenditures, we're about 98% of, of revenues to expenditure, so we've never truly balanced our budget. Um, but about 46% of our, of our revenues is from intergovernmental transfers. 
So uh, a large majority of, of our of our budget comes from the federal government um, through unemployment compensation. You know, um, Governor Wolf, when he came into office, um, fully implemented um, Obamacare. Um, so we have billions and billions of dollars of, of federal dollars coming in um, that if, if they do federal changes, the money is gone. And um, I remember when we had the, the federal stimulus dollars come in, we did about a billion dollars in our education budget. That money went away and people were screaming, you know, and it's one of the reasons Governor Corbett lost because yeah. they blamed him for a billion dollars in education cuts when it was all, all federal pass through dollars. Um, yeah, this is an issue where mm -hmm. I, you know, think is uh, really an existential issue for federalism mm -hmm. in that if states don't begin to say no to the quote unquote free federal dollars in Washington, this mm -hmm. myth of the free money out there that they're taking, whether it's Medicaid expansion under mm -hmm. Obamacare, whether it's transportation dollars, uh, there's so many ways that states are being coerced through federal support, which mm -hmm. I think the short answer to your question is states are way too dependent on federal support. Mm -hmm. right. And obviously in an era of 20 plus trillion of national debt, how long can this support continue to the degree that it's going to states? I think it's going to be just a matter of time between now and when those dollars are cut back. And you know, whether it's, you know, the last thing you'd want to do as an elected official, Seth, is to, to remove people from Medicaid roles after they've been expanded, right? That's, yeah. That would be the worst case scenario from mm -hmm. a political uh, sense, and certainly from a uh, promise that was made that now is yanked back. But you look at something like transportation, for instance, Bill, and this is something I've spent a lot of time thinking about, and some of the reformers of the 1990s were really into the idea of devolving federal highway funds back to the state level and mm -hmm. let states perhaps raise their own gas mm -hmm. taxes, take care of their own transportation needs. Why is it that we have the interstate system created by Dwight Eisenhower that was supposed to be wrapped up at the federal level in the 1960s for federal involvement, still run by the federal government? And did you know dollar one of federal support that comes from Washington to the states on transportation projects requires what we say Davis-Bacon rules, which is uh, prevailing wage laws. Uh, when states have become right to work and repealed prevailing wage laws to become more affordable for construction on highways and school construction and things, the federal government now is putting those kind of costs on state and local governments that are getting less for what they should be getting out of that, those federal dollars. Or attaching policy, with, particularly with federal dollars. Um, you know, uh, we want your blood alcohol level um, for drunk driving at a certain rate. Uh, we want you to do these safety enhancements or you're going to jeopardize your, your federal dollars. Um, you know, Pennsylvania, when we had uh, the, the chairman, the House chairman of the Transportation Committee, uh, we got more transportation dollars than what we paid in. Um, we don't have the chairman of the Transportation Committee anymore, and we're, we're, we're getting less transportation dollars these days. So, so I mean, if we're, we're, we're going to need to wrap up here because we could probably go on for several days in terms of all the policies. <laughs> yeah. And I want to, I want to get away. I want to get out with a, with a sense of, of, you know, again, my thing is lines of action. I mean, mm -hmm. first thing everybody should do is read rich states, poor states. Mm -hmm. And if they're armed with that information, they can be better informed mm -hmm. citizens of their state and they can take, they can develop things. They ought to ask the legislators mm -hmm. to do you, you, you buy that? Yes, absolutely.
So, I buy that. Oh, yeah, well, <laughs> that's the next one. Can, do we, where do we get a copy of this? Do we buy this, or do you give these out, or is this something available on Amazon? Yes, you can uh, go to alec.org. Alec.org. And you can download the entire PDF of not just the current edition, but all 12 editions of Rich States, Poor States, and see how your state's done over the years in this consistent way that we've measured states, as well as read it's all like, the oh, your chapters. report cards back yeah. in fourth grade. Mm -hmm. That's uh, right. Exactly. <laughs> Hopefully a little bit more entertaining. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and for taxpayers and residents, it, it, it is, I think it is kind of a, a report card. How oh, are it's you? A, it's, it's, I, I can't get on all the details yeah. in this, but it's extremely interesting. Yeah. How, how are you holding your, your elected officials yeah. um, uh, accountable for their actions? I mean, it's, it's your economy. It's your money. Um, it's your state. So it helped you in your job mm -hmm. if everybody digested what was in this as Absolutely. it pertains to their mm -hmm. state. Mm -hmm. Anything else? Well, I mean, I think our dozen plus years of research traveling the 50 states, working with state lawmakers, you can summarize our findings really perhaps in an oversimplified way, but you can summarize it in a sentence or so, which is states should strive to be more like Texas and Florida and less like New York and California. We have very two very distinct business models, if you will, across the states in these laboratories, and I think it's awfully clear that the freedom-oriented mindset is, uh, is the mindset that's winning across the states. Um, the, so they wouldn't be chasing Amazon out of, out of, uh, out of, out of the Bronx? <laughs> or paying three to five times as much per job in New York as they did in Virginia to get those same number of jobs that were promised. Seth, yeah, I, I, I would, I would, I would completely agree with that. Um, I think when when you start diving into successful states versus non-successful states, you're going to see some some very broad trend lines. Sure. That you can say, if we do this, we will reap success. But if we do this, we will see failure in our state. Uh, Pennsylvania is one that, um, you know, kind of a, a middle of the road uh, state, you know, we're, we're an old Rust Belt. Um, we could surpass Texas as an economic powerhouse in the world um, if we got our act together, if we got our tax code right and we made some of those reforms uh, in that state. We could, we could easily take them out. Uh, we have a greater supply of energy. Um, we have a, a, a top-tier workforce. Um, we have everything we need to be successful. We, we are a better location. We can reach uh, probably 65% of the United States population within 24 hours. So the takeaway is mm -hmm. that there's so many things we could fix if we just were smarter about which laws we passed. Correct. And facing certain problems in real time. Correct. And the, the positive note of this is there are things that state lawmakers like Seth directly can control. Yeah. And we've shown based mm -hmm. on our years of research that states like Indiana, my home state of Michigan, North Carolina, you can turn it around in a fairly short period of time yeah. if you get policy levers correct and moving in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Uh, Seth Grove, Jonathan Williams, thank you very much. This has thank been you. incredibly interesting. And uh, I'll be back next time when we can, we can see how Pennsylvania is done getting its rating up from 37. I, I, I want I want Utah. I want to take out Utah. Okay, great. Uh, be All right, guys. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Thanks for joining. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe at thebillwaltonshow.com or on iTunes. Amazon is hiring near you. Earn a competitive wage and start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites. Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy.
Go to amazon.com slash apply. That's amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer.